and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and I'm joined today by Professor Nick Davis. Hello, Nick. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming on. So before we get started, Nick, did you want to introduce yourself to everyone? Uh, because we're going to be talking about cuckoos today and that's kind of your specialty, isn't it? Yes. Well, I've been a keen bird watcher ever since I was a little boy and I teach biology uh, in the zoology department at Cambridge. And my research for the last 30 years or so has been trying to unravel how the cuckoo manages to trick its hosts. I do most of my work on Wick and Fen, which is just north of, of the city here. Brilliant. Well, we always start the show with our latest wildlife sightings. And as a guest, you get to go first, Nick. Have you had any interesting wildlife sightings recently? Well, just local walks. So last night I was watching hares boxing in the fields just on the edge of Cambridge and a lovely yellow hammer singing in the treetops as the sun was setting. And we had a bit of drama in our back garden yesterday. We've, we've got a trio of dunnocks, two males and a female. And I looked out the window and the alpha male was having a tremendous fight and he actually killed the beta male. Wow. I've never seen that before. It was quite shocking. He was pecking away at its head and I went out and interrupted them and the beta male was on its last legs, very weak. And uh, that was the end of him. And so since this, this morning, we've just got a pair. So they often have fights, but I've never seen a male kill his rival before. It's very dramatic. Wow, yeah, because of course, Dunnocks are famous for the... Um, shall we say, less than faithful pairings they have, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. I guess he uh, he caught him in the act. and uh... He did. So, I mean, okay. with, with this lockdown, you, there's just treasures going on near home, and it, I think we've all discovered that. Yeah, yeah, certainly have. Uh, me, sightings-wise, uh, I went back up north to Essex to do some work, and there was a pair of buzzards circling all the time, which That's was nice. rather excellent. Yeah, they looked like they want to nest somewhere nearby. It'd be great if they nest in the reserve. That'd be fantastic. And I jumped in the brook or stream there. I did some kick sampling, which is where you kick up the stones and catch all the creatures for those who don't know because you know, put the net downstream. But I also broke out my soil sieve and sieved some of the sediment at the bottom. And I must have had about at least 50 of the big burrowing mayfly nymphs, which look like little mole crickets, fantastic little things. Wonderful. That's really nice. Oh, and, and probably the highlight for me, even though it's not invertebrate, was I was walking through past a load of snowdrops and I looked at the back and went, quite looks like a lot of earth, and sort of wandered through to a patch I don't normally walk down. And there was a badger set that's definitely active because there's a load of bedding sitting out of it. So I've set up a trowel cam on that. I did read that they push out their bedding, don't they? Leave it for a bit. So all the parasites and stuff and it dries out and then they'll bring it back in again. So that should be quite interesting. But we've got you on the show today, Nick, to talk about cuckoos. Now, we do um, have a bit of a running joke and it's very tongue in cheek that birds are boring. But even I could not in any way proclaim a cuckoo as boring I mean, where to start, really? You've got the nest parasitism, you've got the massive migration, and the arms race we're going to be talking about a bit later. So for those that are less familiar, can you explain what a cuckoo is, really, I suppose? Yes. So lots of people have heard cuckoos. They do this wonderful two-note call in the spring, cuckoo, cuckoo, our harbinger of spring. And and that should, uh, towards the end of April, we usually first hear that. But fewer people have actually seen one. They're actually quite shy and secretive. And they're about the size of a collared dove, I suppose. And they have very long tail and long pointed wings and barring underneath. So if you get a brief glimpse, sometimes you might mistake it for a hawk. And then when the male perches on the top of a tree, he's got a very characteristic posture. He he holds his tail up and droops his wings. And when he calls, if you watch through binoculars, you can see that he inflates his throat with the calling. And it's lovely to watch. 
cool. I, mean, I remember the the first one I ever saw, might be the first one I ever saw, saw actually, I was in the Hyde at Minsmere, the High Bitten Hyde, and I was there with my now wife and father-in-law, and this cuckoo flew right in front of the Hyde. I went, what was that? What falcon was that? And he said, it's a cuckoo. And I've never, never seen one in flight, that's for sure. And they do look like... Yeah, it's a sort of falcon or hawk, doesn't they? It's amazing. Very, it's, very rapid wing beats and a rather straight flight, fast mm. flight. Yes, yeah, it's the, it's the long towels the giveaway, I suppose, with the yes. with them and the grey colour. So there's actually quite a few species of cuckoo, isn't there, in the world? Although we only get, really get one, apart from the odd greater spotty that turns up when people go twitch. There's about 150 species of cuckoos in the world, and and more than half of them are just normal nesting birds, just like the birds in your back garden. They build their own nests and raise their own chicks. Only 40% are parasitic cuckoos. And if you look at the family tree of cuckoos, you can see that the parasitic lineages have evolved from parental stock. So they're the more recent twigs on the cuckoo family tree. So it's quite interesting. So cheating has evolved from parental ancestry. In history, that was uh, <laughs> looked down upon, wasn't it, by some people? It's... Uh... There's a whole fascinating facet of all that, isn't there? All the the theories and stuff behind it. It's it's been known for over two thousand years since the time of Aristotle that cuckoos don't look after their own chicks, the, the common cuckoo, the European common cuckoo. And uh, the old idea was simply that the creator had done a bad job and hadn't quite given the cuckoo the parental instincts it needed, so it had to rely on other birds to raise its chicks. And the idea was the other birds were only too pleased to give it a helping hand. And it was really Darwin who came along and said, hang on a minute, no, this is this is cheating going on. The hosts aren't being benevolent, they get tricked. And the reason the cuckoo has become a cheat is that by foisting parental care onto other species, the cuckoo can then lay more eggs. So natural selection will favour cheating if, if the cheats can get away with it. And we, we know that parasitic cuckoos are especially prolific, so the common cuckoo can lay up to 25 eggs in a season, far more than any parental bird can do of course before we get dive right into that topic um they, they have that fantastic migration as well don't they that they do. takes them all the way to africa yes and and again this was a mystery to all naturalists it was assumed uh, back in the 1600s that that cuckoos hibernated and the most curious records of uh, people getting logs and putting them on the fire and, and bringing a cuckoo to life and saying that cuckoos were calling from inside the log. And this is all mad myths, of course. But but 90 years of ringing in the British Trust for Ornithology scheme had only given rise to one recovery south of Africa, south of the Sahara. And this, this is a lovely story. This was a, a cuckoo shot by a native in Cameroon. And the native found a ring on the leg of this cuckoo and he gave it to his wife to wear as an ornament in her nose. And she then went to church, and the local pastor was an English guy who spotted the ring and read the number and reported it to the British Museum. And we know now that this was a cuckoo ringed as a chick in London in the nest of a pied wagtail. And that was the only record, firm record, of cuckoos going south of the Sahara before this wonderful satellite uh, tracking by Chris Houston and his colleagues at the BTO have now revealed the true story, which is just wonderful. Oh, yeah. That's, I remember when they first did that. That was absolutely amazing to see. And we can, we, we've actually got a warning when they're coming back now, haven't they, from these satellite tags yeah. too, on top of it. It's always nice to see. So, so what sort of time of year do they tend to arrive? Well, they usually arrive about 20th of April in the Fens around Cambridge. And that date has more or less been unchanged for the last 150 years. We know it from local naturalist diaries. And although we have warmer springs with many of our birds breeding earlier than normal, 
the cuckoos still turn up at the same old time, and it's probably because their departure from West Africa is dependent on fattening up in order to cross the Sahara. And the timing of the rains and the spring emergence of insects in West Africa hasn't changed. So the departure time for the cuckoo on its northerly migration is still the same as it's been for hundreds of years, perhaps. That's interesting, isn't it? They seem to be unaffected by whereas a lot of things are changing because of climate warming or changing. It's they still get here in time. Oh, that's good. So, so what are the cuckoos eating then? Well, their favourite diet is hairy caterpillars, which of course are distasteful to many species. The cuckoos have got this trick where they they get a hairy caterpillar and they snip off the ends and then they rub the caterpillar up and down their beak very rapidly to squeeze out the poisonous juices. And then they swallow the the skin of the caterpillar. And every few weeks, they shed the lining of their stomach in which the the hairs of poisonous caterpillars are embedded. So they have these tricks to deal with this poisonous prey, which is is avoided by, by other species. Well, so, so do they regurgitate that stomach lining or is it is it just passes through the gut kind of deal? I'm actually not sure. I've never actually seen it. I've just read read about Ooh. it. Ooh, oh, that's right. That's a good question. Trust me to think of that. <laughs> just this image of them sort of coughing it up like a, an owl pellet. That's all. Um, Maybe that's what they do, but I don't know. Wow. I suspect it is known, but I don't know. That's a cracking adaptation. Yeah, and they, they what time they tend to head home pretty soon, don't they? Because obviously, they haven't got to rear their young too. They do. They have a very brief stay in in Britain. So typically, they arrive at the end of April, and then by the beginning of July, when the hosts have finished starting new nests, there's no reason for the cuckoos to stay on, of course, and so they leave. And in fact, Edward Jenner, who was a, an early cuckoo fan uh, back in the 1780s suggested the reason the cuckoo is compelled to be a cheat is because of this early departure, leaving no time for parental care. And that's ingenious, but he actually got his argument the wrong way around. I mean, the reason the cuckoo leaves early is because there's no need for it to stay. So, and, and actually, many of, many of the cuckoos, as shown by the satellite tracking, may, maybe only spend a few weeks. So they're really African birds, which just have a brief trip up to Europe to do their cheating and then they go back to Africa. So they're spending more of their lives with lowland gorillas in the Congo rainforest than they are with the cows in an English countryside. <laughs> it's amazing to think like that, isn't it? Because we always think of them, these sort of things as our birds, but it's a bit like the swift, isn't it? They don't spend that long here, really. They... No. Oh, it's astonishing. And this migration that you referred to is 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 mind-blowing. It you know involves a 50-hour non-stop flight over 3,000 miles of Saharan desert. And it's just extraordinary. And they do it all in one hop, having put on fat to fuel this incredible journey. Crazy, isn't it? It's... I saw, I think it was read it in your book, which we'll mention a bit later, that their distribution of the common cuckoo is quite wide. They go right across Eurasia, don't they? They do, yes. It has a huge breeding range. So in Europe, the only bit of Europe they don't breed in is Iceland. But from Western Europe right through to Japan, you get common cuckoos breeding. And I believe the ones sort of towards the far eastern of their range uh, overwinter in Southeast Asia sort of area, don't they? Well, it, it, we're not totally sure about that. And that used to be the story. But Chris Houston has actually been satellite tagging cuckoos from Mongolia. And instead of popping down to India and Southeast Asia, they actually cross the Arabian Sea and go all the way to Africa. Oh, wow. So it could be that many of the Asian cuckoos still have a route through back to Africa for the winter. And that was astonishing. Yeah, because there's obviously some sort of migration route going across the Indian Ocean because there's the, uh, I believe it's the wandering glider, dragonfly, migrates from Africa to India every year and back again. So, Oh, isn't that wonderful? 
Yeah, because I think they found out originally because there's an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean with no fresh water, and twice a year it fills up with dragonflies. And everyone's like, uh, where'd they all come from? <laughs> you know, which is, I think that's the longest insect migration, but that's not very UK, so I won't go on too much about that. But uh, we like the odd tangent on this show, though. So, nest parasitism, I think we're, we're going to have to dig down. This is your specialty on the subject, if, if there is one. So, what is a nest parasite, just so people are clear on that? Okay, well, so a nest or a brood parasite is really a species that foists parental care onto another species. And it, it happens really wherever you get parental care. So there's a cuckoo fish, there are some, many cuckoo insects, as you'll know better than me, some bumblebees trick other bumblebees into raising their chicks. And among the birds, it occurs in the cuckoos, it occurs in honey guides, in some African parasitic finches, and in one duck. And these are all what are known as obligate brood parasites. They never care for their own offspring. They lay eggs in the nests of other species and rely on those species, the hosts, to do all the hard work. So they're cheats. Smart birds. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that as a parent, but there we go. <laughs> it's about all in, out of the 10,000 plus species of birds in the world, there are about 100 that are these professional cheats. So it's about 1%. And you might think, well, you might expect there to be more than that. But I think part of the story is that although cheating seems a very good idea at first, the problem is the hosts fight back. They, of course, they don't want to be tricked. And this evolutionary arms race produces an end result where these cheats are actually having quite a tough time. They have to come up with all sorts of trickery in order to get their young race for free. That seems like a good uh, place to start talking about all the things the cuckoo has to do to get its eggs in the nest and get it successfully reared. So do you want to talk about how the female gets the egg in the nest in the first place, I suppose? The cuckoos, are, they're fantastic. They're, they're manipulators and Devious cheats. I mean, I thought I was a good bird watcher till I started studying cuckoos, and they are absolutely in a different league. So, what happens is the males arrive first and they set up territories in areas where host nests are abundant. So, on Wiccan Fen and in the Fenland, the main host is reed warblers. So, the male cuckoo will defend a territory containing reed warbler nests, and then females will come along and settle in, a, in an area, and the male will then try and monopolize one or more females through the summer and just mate with her. So the female's got 40 perhaps reed warblers in her territory. She'll only ever lay one egg per host nest. So what she wants during a couple of months of laying is really staggered opportunities to lay eggs. And these staggered opportunities occur naturally because reed warblers in different parts of the fen might start breeding at different times. But the cuckoo is also a manipulator too, because if she comes across a clutch of reed warbler's eggs, which are already being incubated, and so it's too late to parasitize that nest, she'll swallow the whole clutch. And that then forces those reed warblers to build a replacement nest, and so makes available another opportunity for the cuckoo to lay her eggs. So by systematically farming or manipulating host nests in this way, she arrays, uh, arranges for staggered opportunities for parasitism through the season. And she, she's an incredible bird watcher. She's really secretive. She often sits in the bushes watching the hosts. And then she needs to time her egg laying so it coincides with one of the days that the reed warblers are laying their own eggs. So reed warblers typically lay a clutch of four, one egg a day. So the, the cuckoo's really got uh, four days in which to parasitize the nest. If she lays before that in an empty nest, the reed warblers will always throw the egg out. But if she lays too late, equally, her egg won't hatch out in time. 
So she's just got four days, more or less, a little brief window in which to lay her eggs. So having chosen a suitable nest to parasitize, she glides down to the nest from her secret lookout perch. She picks out one of the reed warbler's eggs, lays her own in its place, and then she's off, all within about 10 seconds. And I've watched this many occasions, and you just can't believe she could possibly have laid in such a short time. But you go up to the nest, and sure enough, one of the reed warbler's eggs is missing and is replaced by the cuckoo egg, and the cuckoo egg is the most beautiful match to the reed warbler's green-spotted eggs. And most of the time, the reed warblers come back and they don't notice any change to their clutch. Why should they? There's still the same number of eggs and the new cuckoo egg looks more or less the same as their own. And they now sit on that clutch. And if they accept it, they're now sitting on a bomb, literally a bomb, which is going to explode in 11 days' time. Because, of course, the newly hatched cuckoo hatches out first and just a few hours old and still naked and blind, it balances each of the reed warbler's eggs on its back one by one, staggers up to the edge of the nest and with a little flick of its wing stumps, tosses each egg overboard. And the astonishing thing is that the female reed warblers often sit and watch this happening and yet they do nothing to interfere. And so they end up with just a cuckoo chick to feed and they spend their whole summer raising a cuckoo instead of a brood of their own. It's amazing, isn't it? It is absolutely amazing. Even when you know what's going to happen, you still can't quite believe it when you see it. I just love the little adaptations. Like the, the chick has a dent in its back, doesn't it, to help it get the eggs or chick out the nest? It does. Just, yes, it does. Oh, it's just, just little things like that in the, the whole what comes out of an evolutionary arms race is absolutely fascinating. It does it all by feel. And, and we've done experiments where we've recorded baby cuckoos' behaviour and begging calls in an artificial nest. And I once did an experiment where I put in a little temperature recorder because I wanted to make sure that the cuckoos didn't get too cold. And I heard all this clattering in the shed while I was doing these experiments. I thought, what's going on? And I looked in and the baby cuckoo had got the temperature recorder on its back and was throwing that out of the nest. <laughs> so they absolutely won't tolerate anything in the nest. Everything goes. They want to be the sole occupant. That is bad. Because you talk about experiments, you did, I, mean, I saw there was a natural world, oh, it was about 10 years ago now, so it was crazy, wasn't it? Which it showed your work, basically, which involved putting false eggs and painted eggs and various things like that to see how the warblers reacted to them in when they were put in the nest. Yeah, so that, that procedure that I've just described by the cuckoo, we wanted to test whether that was important for tricking the hosts and indeed whether the hosts had any defences at all. When we tracked real cuckoo's eggs, their fate on Wick and Fen, we found that about 10% of the cuckoo's eggs were thrown out of the nest by the reed warblers. And what they do is they puncture the cuckoo egg and they drink a bit of the contents so that these don't spill over the rest of the clutch. And they very carefully then pick the cuckoo egg up and chuck it out of the nest. So we thought, oh, good for the reed warblers. They're not fooled every time. And we wondered, well, what cues are they using to pick out the parasitic egg? And we decided the best way to test this was to become cuckoos ourselves. And we made model eggs uh, of the same size and weight as real cuckoo eggs. And then we had fun going around Wick and Fen, popping them in reed warblers' nests, and then coming back the next day to see if they'd been accepted or not. And the main result was that if we put model eggs in a reed warbler nest, which are of the same colour as the reed warblers' own eggs, they were almost all accepted. But if our eggs were different in colour, then they quickly got chucked out by the reed warblers. So the reed warblers are on the lookout for odd eggs in their nest. 
And that's, of course, why the cuckoo has had to evolve such a good match in order to fool the hosts. For those listening, if you go onto YouTube and type in cuckoo and Nick's name, you get a Royal Society lecture come out that's very interesting on all this topic, which, you know, goes really into detail on all this. So, you know, one thing I noticed you found was the the first year breeding reed warblers were worse at detecting the eggs, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, so you might think, well, how, how does the... Maybe, maybe if you're a reed warbler, you simply adopt the rule, throw the odd, throw an odd egg out. But they're, actually, they're not doing that because if you give them three foreign eggs and one of their own in an experiment, so that their own egg is now the odd one out, they'll throw the three foreign eggs out. So that shows they know what their own eggs look like and are rejecting eggs that differ from their own type. And experiments show that the reed warblers learn their own type at the very first time they lay. So as you've said, young birds who've not yet learnt their own type are more likely to accept a foreign egg. In effect, they misimprint on a foreign egg as one of their own. Whereas old birds which have bred before, which know their own type, are much better at throwing out foreign eggs. So the poor old reed warblers, they've, they've got a problem. You know, how do you know what your own eggs look like? Well, you have to learn it. Uh, I think that's a, a good point to ask uh, one of the readers' questions. Well, we've mentioned that they match the colour to different species, but we might as well start with uh, Ben Andrews' photos on Twitter, which is Ben Andrew. He asked, I'd like to know how many different species of bird in the UK cuckoos have been recorded to nest parasitise, please. So... In the UK, this is the BTO nest records, there's about 55 different species of birds have been recorded as cuckoo hosts. Namely, a cuckoo egg has been found in their nest. Um, but many of those, there's only one or two records. They're obviously not regularly parasitised. And the main hosts in the UK are reed warblers in Fenland, meadow pipits in moorland, and dunnocks and robins in hedgerows and woodland, with wrens and pied wagtails also being frequent hosts. Now, you, you might think that a very clever cuckoo could alter the colour of her egg to match a particular host's clutch. Well, the cuckoos aren't that clever. Cuckoos have a genetically determined egg pattern which they can't change. A particular female cuckoo will always lay exactly the same egg colour and type throughout her life. But the female cuckoos are specialists. There's different subspecies or races of female cuckoos, each of which that target a different host. So the, the, the female race of cuckoos in the fens we have here uh, lays a greenish egg and they go for reed warblers. But if you go into the moorlands of northern Britain or western Britain, there's a different genetic race of cuckoos there who lay brownish eggs and they target meadow pipits. And we don't know how they know their ho which host to choose, but we assume it's through imprinting, namely a young cuckoo imprints on the hosts that feed it and then targets that same host species to parasitize when it grows up and becomes a parasite itself. And we don't know that for sure, but we assume that's what happens. And this host imprinting has been shown in African parasitic finches by experiment, where certainly these parasitic cuckoo finches do imprint on the hosts that feed them and target that same species when they become a parasite as they grow up. So it's probably host imprinting, but that's not been shown for sure. And there's a related question from Paul P. Hi, could you ask if they parasitise the same birds as adults uh, and the nests that they were born into, or can they change the different species of hosts and change their egg colour to adapt? So that's a great question. So 
Egg colour, as in most species of birds, is almost certainly genetically inherited. So that's fixed by genetics, the egg colour and the pattern you lay on your egg. And we certainly know that female cuckoos always lay the same egg type throughout their lives. But this choice of host is probably learned through imprinting. So we, we, de we definitely have different strains, almost like subspecies of cuckoos across Europe. There's perhaps 20 different genetic strains of cuckoos, each of which targets a particular host species and lays an egg which matches that particular host. And this matching is very important because most host species are very fussy and will throw cuckoo's eggs out of the nest. So if you're a meadow pipit, unless it's a brown egg, it'll get chucked out. So that strain of cuckoo has had to evolve a brown egg. If you're a reed warbler, it's got to be a green egg or else the egg will get thrown out. So that strain of cuckoo's had to lay evolve a green matching egg. I think there was in the book or the or one of your documentaries you're in, the dunnock has very little adaptation. Well, the dunnock uh, race, I should say. Yes, it does have. And I think it's fairly. You think it's fairly recent. So that's right. There's there's the cuckoos that target dunnocks, and this is a definitely a, a distinct cuckoo strain because it's genetically different from the other strains of cuckoos. And yet, its egg does not match the dunnock's eggs. So dunnocks lay beautiful plain blue eggs whereas the cuckoo strain that goes for dunnocks lays a sort of greyish spotted egg. And our experiments show the reason why, and the reason why is, is that the dunnocks will accept any coloured egg in their nest. So there's been no selective selection for that strain of cuckoos to evolve a good match. And one possibility is that dunnocks are relatively recent hosts who haven't had time to evolve defences. We can be pretty sure that if ever they do get fussy, the cuckoo will be able to evolve a good blue egg to match the dunnock's egg, because there's a strain in Eastern Europe and Finland that goes for red starts, which have got blue eggs, and red starts are fussy and throw out odd eggs. And that strain of cuckoo has evolved the most beautiful blue match, a perfect blue plain egg to match the red starts eggs. So those experiments show that the, the cuckoos only bother, as it were, to evolve egg mimicry when their hosts become fussy. In your talk, you mentioned that there's some species that show evidence of having basically won the arms race with the cuckoo and that might explain why there's not so many birds that are parasites because in the end uh, you end up with the host get so adapted to stopping the cuckoo parasitizing it can't use it anymore basically yes absolutely so so we think the ground state for small birds is not to throw odd eggs out of the nest so if you put the model eggs that we've made into the nests of birds which have never had an arms race with cuckoos for example, because they nest in little holes like tits or pied flycatchers, or because their diet is unsuitable for raising baby cuckoos, namely their seed diet. What we find is that those species, the seed eaters and the hole nesters, are quite happy to accept any odd egg in their nest. So that suggests that if you're untainted by cuckoos, there's no reason to be fussy. Only once cuckoos begin to parasitise do you evolve defences, as reed warblers and medipipits and so on have done. But there are some small birds, as you've just said, which are not used by cuckoos. And we might think, well, why not? And so one is the chaffinch. And chaffinches are incredibly fussy about odd eggs in their nest. In fact, we've never managed to paint an egg good enough to fool a chaffinch. They're always so sharp-eyed, they throw the foreign egg out. In fact, they're even sharper-eyed against foreign eggs than reed warblers and metapipits. So we wonder, as you say, if these might be old hosts of the cuckoo, we still have a legacy of the arms race their ancestors ran thousands of years ago in the form of egg rejection. And maybe they beat the cuckoo and the cuckoo was then forced to change hosts. But that's a conjecture. We don't know for sure. But my guess is it, it, it might have happened. Yeah, because they'd probably make a pretty good host for a cuckoo, wouldn't they? 
Absolutely, yes. And and in the continent, Brambling, which is basically a mountain chaffinch, they're favourite hosts, yes. Mm. I should, I should have mentioned there's there's another very interesting host defense it's not just throwing odd eggs out of the nest but evolutionarily speaking hosts evolve more distinctive signatures on their eggs in the forms of spots and squiggles in effect writing on their egg this is my egg and hosts of cuckoos have especially well marked eggs cuckoos then have to evolve forgeries by copying those spots and squiggles by in effect writing on their egg this is your egg too so you get a signature forgery arms race producing ever more distinctive egg patterns. And that is almost certainly a result of a cuckoo host arms race too. So these arms races can produce beauty in nature too, as well as murderous behaviour as, as that as the young cuckoo chick. It's, it's one of those wonderful, well, I suppose most scientists like this, the more you dig into it, the more there is to find out kind of things. So moving on from the eggs to the chicks... Of course, a cuckoo is much bigger than these host birds. And, you know, when you see the pictures of a dunnock sat on the back of a cuckoo, yes, you wonder how how they <laughs> work out that that is not their chick and stop feeding it. It's it, it's totally bizarre. So that the hosts have all got these wonderful defences at the egg stage. But as you say, once the cuckoo chick hatches, they then seem defenceless. And we've got no records of hosts, at least reed warblers, rejecting cuckoo chicks. And although the cuckoo chick looks different from the host chicks, it's got an amazing vocal trick, which seems to be important for fooling the hosts. And that is that its begging call sounds like a whole brood of hungry chicks. So most little birds in the nest when they're hungry, they go cheep, cheep. But the cuckoo chick goes cheep, 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 cheep at a fantastically fast rate. And it sounded to our ears just like a whole brood of hungry reed warblers. And we did some experiments to show that this vocal sound is actually essential for tricking the reed warblers into bringing the cuckoo enough food. So we thought maybe the reason the reed warblers love this big chick so much, the baby cuckoo, is just its size. Maybe they think it's a sort of super normal stimulus that they can't resist. So what we did is under license, we removed some reed warbler chicks from a nest and we replaced them with a single blackbird chick, which we just borrowed from a blackbird nest. Now, don't worry about these chicks. They all went back to the rightful nest at the end of the experiment and no chicks were harmed in this experiment. And what we found is that the reed warblers would feed the blackbird chick, of course, but they didn't bring it as much food as they would to a cuckoo of the same size. So that suggests just a big chick is not a sufficient stimulus for the reed warblers to bring enough food. And then what we did is we added to the blackbird chick a little loudspeaker. And every time the blackbird chick begged, we broadcast cuckoo begging calls. And that did the trick. Almost the reed warblers more or less double the rate at which they now fed the blackbird. So this vocal stimulus of sounding like lots of hungry chicks is essential for the cuckoo to get enough food. In effect, the, the reed warblers treat this baby cuckoo just as if it was a brood of their own chicks. So the poorer reed warblers, they get brainwashed by visual mimicry in eggs and by this vocal trickery um, in chicks. I don't think we've solved it completely because you might say, well, why on earth don't the reed warblers realise that as this cuckoo gets to be even bigger than themselves, that it can't be possibly one of their own chicks? And, and they don't. It could be partly this, there's some sort of supernormal advertisement going on, some sort of brainwashing. But certainly the vocal trickery seems to be sufficient to override any visual mismatch and to get the reed warblers to feed the cuckoo chick. 
It's amazing, isn't it? I keep saying that, but it is just amazing. <laughs> I often say to the reed warblers when they're feeding a cuckoo fledgling, for God's sake, why don't you realise this chick's far too big? And I imagine the reed warblers turning to me and saying, well, hang on a minute, you get brainwashed by all these advertisements into wasting your money on stuff that you don't really need. Uh, you get yeah. tricked too. And of course we do. We're being tricked all our lives in, in a similar sort of way that, uh, that reed warblers are getting tricked. Nature is amazing. I always say that, but it really is. Has there ever been a case where there's been two cuckoo eggs laid in the same nest? And how do they try and avoid that? So the female cuckoo will defend a territory containing host nests and she'll keep other female cuckoos at bay and she'll only ever lay one egg per nest. But sometimes subordinate cuckoos will sneak on to a territory and they might then parasitize a nest where there's already a cuckoo egg. Now, remember, the cuckoo will remove an egg before she lays her own. So sometimes she'll remove the first cuckoo's egg and leave it with her own egg, um, leave the nest with her own egg. But sometimes she'll remove another reed warbler egg. And so you end up with two cuckoo eggs in the nest laid by different females. And what happens then is that the earlier cuckoo egg usually hatches first. And so the reed warbler's eggs and the remaining cuckoo egg will get chucked out of the nest. But sometimes the two cuckoo chicks might both hatch out and then you get an enormous battle in which the stronger cuckoo chick will evict the other one. So you only ever get one cuckoo chick laid in a nest. And that's very interesting. Of course, it suggests that any second cuckoo who comes along should, of course, really look out for a previous cuckoo egg and target previous cuckoo eggs for removal. But they don't. They just remove an egg at random. So that seems to be a chink in the cuckoo's armoury. A really clever cuckoo should target other cuckoo's eggs but they don't, they remove an egg at random. And perhaps the cuckoo's egg mimicry is good enough to fool other cuckoos just as it fools the hosts so that they, they can't target a, a, a cuckoo egg. Now, I suppose that makes sense because if, if you have another bird come into your territory and lay an egg, your egg hopefully will hatch first and boot it out before it does. Yes, yes. God, there's an arms race between the cuckoos as well. <laughs> there's an arms race between the cuckoos themselves. Now, in the old wow. days on Wiccan, about one in five, about 20% of the parasitized nests had two cuckoos' eggs in because there were lots of female cuckoos about, so lots of competition. But now we almost never see that. Cuckoos have become rarer. So the cases of two eggs two cuckoo eggs in the same nest have become very rare. Well, that brings me nicely on to the question of why are cuckoos declining, or at least in England, because I believe they're going up. Numbers going up in Scotland, I read somewhere. Yes, so numbers in Scotland are holding steady or perhaps even increasing slightly, and we don't know the reason. So the decline in lowland England is very likely in part due to decline in insect food supplies. So studies by Charles Tyler and his students on Dartmoor They've been monitoring cuckoo food, these hairy caterpillars, and there's definitely been a, de a decline in food available, which is likely to have affected cuckoo breeding success. But there might be problems on migration too. And Chris Hooson and co have recently made um, some wonderful discoveries, namely that English cuckoos on their autumn migration tend to go southwest through Spain. And there's tremendous mortality on migration, especially in recent years. And that's because they seem to be not able to put on sufficient fat to cross the Sahara. So something like 50% of the cuckoos choosing this southwestern route, which is the typical route for English cuckoos, don't make it. Whereas Scottish cuckoos tend to go southeast through Italy, and more or less 90% of them make it. So perhaps their fattening grounds in northern Italy are still rich and enable them to cross the Sahara. And these different fates on migration marry beautifully with the different current 
fates of the breeding populations, namely the Scottish cuckoos are doing very well and the English cuckoos not so well. So these different fates on migration might be part of the story, but my guess is maybe food supply is also important too. In ecology, it's very rarely one simple explanation. There's usually lots of things going on. And we know that lots of our insectivorous birds are in trouble now with decline in food supply. So it would be likely that cuckoos are having the same problems too. Yeah, that's that old age old insect decline is causing a lot of problems again uh, yeah some people are still trying to get neonectides back but let's not go into that because uh, <laughs> that's a horrible one because uh, i i was wondering if it was the host but i did look very quickly on the bta website at reed warbler numbers and they're doing quite well aren't they reed warblers yes the number we found the number of cuckoos in the fens has more or less stayed the same but cuckoos have plummeted so when we started our studies in the 1980s between 10 and 20% of the reed warblers' nests were parasitized by cuckoos, and now it's down to 1% to 2%. And the reed warbler numbers are still the same. It's, it's this precipitous decline in cuckoos, and it's very sad. And, and what's interesting is that it's not only humans that have noticed the decline in the cuckoos, but the reed warblers have noticed it too. Mm-hmm. And our experiments show they've relaxed their defences. They're not so fussy about <laughs> odd eggs in their nests. And, of course, that makes very good sense. You know, if there are fewer burglars are, are around, then you shouldn't be so fussy in locking up your possessions. Yeah, yeah. And, and we think the, the reason is that reed, the reed warbler, sometimes an ovifussy reed warbler rejects one of its own eggs unnecessarily. And so if you realise there aren't so many cuckoos about, then you should relax your fences and these uh, mistaken ejections are no longer take place. <laughs> All these different interactions. It's amazing. The tangle bank, as uh, Darwin put it, as you've, you've mentioned as well. So, um, so not, not only are cuckoos looking out for reed warblers, but reed warblers are looking out for cuckoos too. So it's a two-way interaction. I, I forgot to say when we were doing our experiments, one of the experiments we enjoyed doing the most was showing that this rapid speed of laying is really important too, because if you put a stuffed cuckoo next to a reed warbler nest to simulate a female who's a bit slow, the reed warblers mob the cuckoo like mad, of course. But then having been alerted by the sight of a, of a cuckoo at their nest, they're much more likely to reject even a good matching egg. So cuckoos have got to be in and out to avoid alerting the hosts. Rapid speed of, of layings and this secrecy is very important too. I mean, I've, I've read an old book and I've not seen it repeated anywhere, but they're I don't know how valid the theory is that their mimicry of sparrowhawks is to flush the adult off the nest briefly and then they can get in and get out again is, is one theory. Is there anything to that? I, I think there might be something to that. Certainly some reed warblers are reluctant to approach a cuckoo and they treat it like a hawk. And mm. we've done experiments with stuffed models where if we cover up the barring, then reed warblers are more likely to approach. So certainly this barring rather like a hawk seems to be partly responsible for for them treating the cuckoo as if it was a hawk and and it 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 could be that it enables the cuckoo to get better access to the host nest and it could be also that this hawk mimicry or the similarity to hawks is also part of the trickery in effect it might throw reed warblers off the scent and they think that there are hawks about i better look after myself and it diverts their attention away from changes to the nest towards their own safety too they are so falcon like I mentioned it earlier, but the first time I saw one, it had me fooled. Going quickly back to decline, my understanding is that the ones of sort of woodland and hedgerow based hosts have declined more than the reed bed ones. Is that could that be related to host decline? Because I know Bleem Woods in Kent used to be legendary for its cuckoos, and they haven't heard a cuckoo there for something like a decade or more. Yes, I'm actually I'm not sure about that. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Is is the answer? 
Yeah, don't know. I don't know if we do. Anyone knows really. <laughs> I think it might be might be the answer on that one. You you often just get one or two cuckoos at a particular site, and the cuckoo mm. will always come back to the same site year after year. So you could get cuckoos, say, for five or six years in a particular mm. woodland or a particular patch of fen, and it's just the same cuckoo coming back and back. And when that cuckoo dies, that little spot then might be empty for a bit until a different cuckoo comes along to colonise it. And with mm. cuckoos declining now, probably fewer and fewer empty patches are replaced by new cuckoos. And that could be part of the story. Yeah, I suppose if you've got something that's slightly suboptimal, there's going to be space at the optimum habitat and then ignore the suboptimal now, I suppose. Because I believe in Devon, you know, parts of Dartmoor have got a healthy-ish cuckoo population, but there's pretty much zero cuckoo records in the rest of Devon now. It's uh, it's very sad. but it, it, it is sad. I mean, we're losing not only our... It's a cultural loss through losing our harbinger of spring, but it's, uh, mm. we're losing some of the best natural history you can see anywhere on earth uh, you know they it's just fantastic uh, this this arms race between host defenses and cuckoo trickery and it would just be tragic if we lost that from the natural world um you mentioned the five or six years is that that the sort of maximum lifespan of a cuckoo well, we don't have very good data but the ringing data suggests that survival of cuckoos is something like 60 percent so most cuckoos will just have one or two breeding seasons, but some might live up to, I think the record's eight, if I remember right. and might not be, something like that anyway. So, so, I mean, we could talk all day. There's all the history and myths and the legends, the the stuff that the cuckoo's um, stomach was the wrong shape to, <laughs> to brood an egg and stuff like that. They're all the theories of why they didn't brood. Um, but I think if people want to find that, they should check out your book, Cuckoo Cheating by Nature, which is a really good book. But uh, I want to ask you, have you got any plans? I, oh, <laughs> I say plans, obviously they're not going to be definite. Plans of field work this year? Are you going to carry on with some work? Well, we'd like to. We, we weren't allowed to go on and do research on Wiccan Fen last summer because of the lockdown. So that was the first mm. season for 30 years that we couldn't monitor right. the nests. But I'm hoping if lockdown eases, we'll be allowed back onto our patches where we can, we'll just do some routine monitoring, I think, to have a look at uh, what the, the cuckoo population and reed warbler population are like. I mean, many people noticed cuckoos more last year, and whether that was really that there were more cuckoos about or just that they had more leisure time to notice what was going on in their local patch, we don't know. So this routine monitoring, I think, will be very interesting. I can't wait to get out there. I really miss these birds. Each time you find a a cuckoo egg in a nest, it's a tremendous thrill. You you never get tired of it. It's it's wonderful. Well, if you want a field assistant for the day, I'll be happy to come and help. Well, I think that's probably a good place to finish. Have you got? You believe you've got a recording of of a male and a female cuckoo? So there you heard the familiar two-note call of the male cuckoo, cuckoo, and then that extraordinary bubbling sound. It, it's very haunting. It almost sends shivers down my spine. And that's the less often heard call of, of, of a female cuckoo. I remember the first time I heard that, I was going, 
that's a very weird sounding blackbird was <laughs> my first my first week. I didn't realise what it was. It's called a bubble or a chuckle, yeah. Mm, yeah, bubbling call is what I was taught it was and I've I've never forgotten it now. But you heard they heard the male it gets it sounds like he gets excited. Is that when he finds a female? The the cuckoo gets really quick. Yes, yeah, so if a fe- if a male's following a female or mm. chasing off another male, he gets very excited and he sometimes goes cuckoo. Yeah, it gets a bit of a stutter going. Yeah, sometimes they'll make a, a, a strange <coughs> noise. It's almost guttering noise. Yeah, so I that. often call cuckoos in by mimicking their sounds. I'll do one now. <coughs> and that's enough to bring a cuckoo in, and he'll then fly around your head looking for a rival and going <coughs> as he flies around. I don't like doing it too much because you can really spoil his day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got to be careful. But yeah, no, I've I've very lucky that I worked on a site that had well had a pretty stable cuckoo population, and it's quite a few days. I'd not only have males flying over, but I had two males pursuing a female right overhead. Oh, was not great with that that calling going on. It's just kind of yeah, having spent my entire childhood having only ever heard one cuckoo it just happened to never go anywhere that had them yeah when i finally i've seen them quite a bit now fantastic well nick thank you so much for coming on it's been absolutely fascinating thank you um, for inviting me it's been a pleasure are, are you on social media anywhere at all if people want to follow you or anything like that no i'm not actually but they're very welcome to send an e- email uh, if they'd like to so n.b.davies at zoo.cam.ac.uk yeah if, if if you Google Professor Nick Davies as well, you can. if you didn't get that, you can find the email that way. So I think that's how I found it. Um, but yeah, do check out Nick's book. Um, I'm not just saying that as a thank you for him coming on. It is a really fascinating read. And uh, I'll put a link to the lecture on YouTube as well. So if you really, if you really liked all this stuff, go, do definitely go and watch that. There's some fantastic clips of early naturalists working on cuckoos and stuff like that in there. And keep your eye on iPlayer. It hasn't come up for ages but um, the natural world on cuckoos is well worth a look as well with a, a familiar sounding voice and face in there. I'm not that I can see your face, Nick, but <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody, and see you all next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod or one word or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast and like us on our Facebook page UK Wildlife Podcast and you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group or if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast this episode was edited by Oscar Henderson you can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more.